This is 15-Minute History, a podcast for educators, students, and history buffs featuring the minds and talents of the University of Texas at Austin. 15-Minute History is a partnership of Not Even Past and Hemispheres in the College of Liberal Arts at UT Austin. Welcome back. I'm your host, Christopher Rose, with the Center for Middle Eastern Studies. My guest today in the studio, once again, is Sharzad Ahmadi, who is a doctoral student in the Department of History here at UT Austin, where she specializes in the history of modern Iran. Shaz, welcome back to the studio. It's a pleasure to be here. This is the second of a series of episodes we're doing on the origins of sectarianism in early Islam. Um, if you missed our last episode, we ended with the death of the third caliph Uthman in the city of Medina in the year 656. Ali, who is the prophet Muhammad's uh, son-in-law and adopted son and cousin, uh, has been declared the caliph and this is not sitting well with two of his remaining companions, uh, men by the name of Zubair and Talha, nor with his favorite wife, Aisha. So let's pick up the story there. You had mentioned that Ali and Aisha didn't have a great relationship. Um, does that contribute to this situation? Some say it does. But again, I think this is oversimplifying two very complicated figures. I don't think that Aisha would have led a war simply because she didn't like Ali. But certainly his character had, um, you know, been in question for her for some time. She had been accused of infidelity when she was married to the prophet. And the prophet, who was, you know, very, very hurt by the whole fiasco and really at the brink of um, indecision, he just simply didn't know what to do about the situation. He went to Ali to ask for advice. And Ali basically says, women are replaceable. This is becoming complicated. Just get rid of her. And Aisha never forgives him for this, that he would not only not side with her, but encourage Muhammad to divorce her. Mm-hmm. Um, and the two of them hadn't really been on the best terms since then. But again, it would be too simple to say that she didn't support him because of this one incident. Right. As we mentioned at the end of the last episode, one of the more immediate causes of the disagreement was that... Ali's claim to the caliphate had been supported by the very people who had assassinated the previous caliph, which was also considered quite controversial. Exactly. And she considered herself the mother of believers. Um, I think the other wives of the prophet were not politically active because they had very strong male figures in their lives who prevented them from being politically active. She did not have those things. So her father was dead at that point. She had a brother who actually sided with Ali. And she didn't have anybody restricting her. She was pretty free in that respect. So she was able to exert some authority over the Islamic community, and she believed it to be her right to do so. What is the fallout of this disagreement? Um, You mentioned that not everyone supported Ali as caliph. So what actually happened as the community tried to sort this out? So um, Zubair and Talha actually originally swear allegiance to him. And there's a lot of discussion that this was by force, that they felt really intimidated and pressured to do so. And in fact, they eventually defect and go to Aisha's side and say that he shouldn't be the caliph. And of course, this is also politically motivated. They were the other two companions left. They probably also wanted that political power for themselves in some way. And Talha and Zubair were also Aisha's cousins. So there is that allegiance as well. Aisha and Talha and Zubair organized to fight against Ali, and there's an epic battle that takes place in Basra. It's called Battle of the Camel. 
The camel actually refers to Aisha. It's a way of talking about her without directly referring to her. She's sitting in a hoda, which is sort of like a carriage on the camel, and she's, you know, the the one figure that's situated on this camel to which the Battle of the Camel refers. So she's visible to the entire battlefield. Is she sort of the one who rallied the troops to battle? Absolutely. She's, um, you know, a really fascinating and powerful woman. Zubair and Talha are dead by noon. I mean, in the, it's a very bloody war, and it's an incredibly traumatic event for the Islamic community. There are hadiths narrating this as, like, you know, an incredibly violent, gruesome battle, and especially for a community that had not experienced this kind of bloodletting before. So there are so many scenes described in histories of, you know, limbs flying and people dying. And here is this woman on a camel that's been pierced with so many arrows that people describe it as a hedgehog. You know, it's just been, you know, attacked to no avail because she doesn't get actually injured. But it really is, you know, an incredible moment in Islamic history. Here's a woman sitting in the howdah giving orders, directing men to fight battle. And there wasn't a pre-Islamic precedent to this. Women had traditionally been um, present on the field of battle. They would encourage men to fight. But to be essentially a general on the field, it's an incredible thing. One imagines this is, as you mentioned, a, a really traumatic event. It's 656, which means it's barely 25 years since the Prophet Muhammad died. And the community is literally tearing itself apart, which is, of course, sort of antithetical to the the whole notion of the unity of the community. So how does the battle end? You've mentioned a lot of bloodshed. What is the outcome? So like I said, Talha and Zubair die pretty early on. Um, Aisha remains unhurt, but they do surrender. So Aisha's side loses. Her camel, the legs of her camel are actually cut out from under her. And her uh, half-brother, who's fighting for Ali, comes to the howdah and opens it up and calls her by the prophet's nickname for her as sort of like a sneering um, a sneering attack. And, you know, people really are angry. They're angry with the mother of believers. They're angry about this kind of death and bloodshed. Ali is actually very respectful of her. He puts her in comfortable lodging, and he promptly sends her back to Medina and says, stay there and don't be involved in politics. And she ends up being actually a very important figure for Hadith literature. She narrates a lot of Hadiths. So we have a lot of stories from the Prophet and stories of the era narrated back to Aisha. And that makes her very important for the Islamic community because, you know, we have a history from her. So what happens with Ali then? So... You know, Ali can't catch a break. Um, After he defeats Aisha, um, he has to continue the civil war. After all, uh, Uthman had been killed, and the people who killed him were never reprimanded. This had to be addressed at some point. Um, So in 657, there is another civil war continuation of this at Sifin. Ma'awiyah, who is the uh, relative of Uthman, um, he's from the same clan as Uthman, says that he's responsible to revenge Uthman's death. The way that um, murders were addressed in this period was the person who was killed was the responsibility of one's clan or one's relative. So not anybody could go and kill the murderer of that person. Someone associated with the deceased would then address the issue. The proper person to address the issue of the death of Uthman was Muawiyah, wasn't Aisha. And so many of the people who criticized Aisha said this. They said, look, 
you're not the person to be reprimanding Ali for anything. She would say, no, but I'm the mother of believers and Uthman was a believer and therefore he is um, relevant to me. But in terms of um, Arab tradition, it was actually Muawiyah. And he wants also to take over the caliphate. I mean, he's also a contender politically. And Ali does not want a long, drawn-out war. And it's really in his best interest to negotiate with Muawiyah. So has the responsibility for Uthman's death really shifted to Ali at this point? Uh, One of the things I've noticed is we have a lot of names, but uh, we're not discussing the names of the actual assassins themselves. So is he sort of taken on by proxy the role of murderer here? In a way, you know, he is the leader of the Islamic community, and it is his responsibility to address the death, and he hasn't. And this really plagues his entire caliphate. I mean, from beginning to end, it is civil war. I mean, we call Ali's period the first fitna. I mean, he's always at war with somebody. And it's because of this uh, first rupture, this first moment of this man has been killed and I am responsible for addressing it and I can't because those are the very people who put me in power. And because he didn't punish these people, Muawiyah does have the right to claim a stake to the caliphate. So this dogs him forever. Well, for the very few years, actually, not forever, for the very few years that he is caliph. And he does eventually negotiate with Muawiyah, but his followers are so disgusted by him. They're so disgusted that he would negotiate that they walk out, many of them. And they're called the Kharajis, which basically means like the people who walked out. And then they fight with Ali. So he never really has a moment to be caliph. And this is part of what's so painful for Shias, that the person that they wanted so much to be caliph never really has a fair chance to rule the Islamic community. So you mentioned that there were negotiations between Ali and Muawiyah. Um, what was the what was the outcome of those, other than the departure of the Kharijis from the scene? Well, he does successfully negotiate with Muawiyah, and they do come at a peace. It's not long-lived because he gets killed by a Kharaji very quickly thereafter. He comes to a, a deal with Muawiyah, and then after dealing with him, he has to turn his attention to the Kharijis and fight against the very people who were just supporting him the year before. And he battles with them in a in a very very bloody um, war. It's at it's in uh, Narawan in 658, and you know he creates opposition against him at a time where he really cannot afford it. And while praying in a mosque in Kufa, he's killed by one of the Haraji seceders, and with his death ends the first fitna. So he rules from 656 to 661. So does the story end there? Is Muawiyah now the unparalleled caliph? of the the Islamic community. I mean, those familiar with history will recognize the name of his clan. Muawiyah was from the Umayyad clan, and the Umayyad dynasty is recognized as the first Islamic state outside of the peninsula. So is, is that the end of the story? He does become caliph after Ali's death. And the real continuation of the story is with Ali's children, Hassan and Hussein, and they become really central. Hassan actually cuts a deal with Muawiyah. He says, you know, I don't want any piece of this. I'm I am walking out of this of this battle. This is really problematic for Shias because, you know, it contests the very notion that the party of Ali was the one that really um, deserved the right to rule. He concedes that to Muawiyah. He's eventually killed by his wife, who was actually supporting Muawiyah in some way. He's poisoned, and there's a lot of theories about what this was and what happened. And it was eventually Hussein who would be the one to 
you know, really go up against another very corrupt caliph, and he's killed. And this is like, Shias are more uh, focused on this death, uh, this martyrdom, essentially, than really any other. This is like a real focal point of pain for them, that he would be unsuccessful in defeating an unjust ruler. And, you know, it calls into question many things. But they have many ceremonies that refer to this. The Tazia plays refer to this. The Ashura ceremonies refer to this. So while the story doesn't end with Ali, it does sort of reach its end with Hussein in many ways, even though there are imams subsequent to him. So after Hussein's death, and this was at the Battle of Karbala, if Correct. I'm not mistaken, what happens to his supporters, to the Shia, if you will? Um, at the Battle of Karbala, the Shias are really decimated. Um, they don't have a lot of support from the surrounding communities that did actually support Hussein. And so a lot of the mourning ceremonies are about why didn't we come out and support Hussein when we had the chance? And the sister of Hussein, the daughter of Fatima and Ali, uh, Zainab, becomes really important for Shias. Much like Aisha, who narrates a lot of stories, Zainab ends up narrating a lot of stories for the Shia community. And this also uh, demonstrates the rift. At this point, it's no longer an issue of, like, who's the next just caliph. The issue becomes the Shia, the party of Ali, the people who believe that Ali should have been the very first caliph, his son should have been the next caliph, and it should have gone on like that, and the people who believe that the Islamic community selected certain leaders, and they accept Ali as a just leader— I think a lot of Shias have a misconception that Sunnis don't appreciate or accept Ali, and that's not true. He's part of the four rightly guided caliphs. It goes Abu Bakr, Omar, Uthman, and Ali. And, you know, the fact that Aisha fought against Ali is problematic for Sunnis. It does complicate her memory. But they do also accept that there was a rift in that small group of close friends. You know, this is in many ways a family drama. A lot of people didn't like each other. A lot of people believe that the Islamic community should go in different directions. And the Shias and Sunnis have been uh, sort of adding on to the story, elaborating the story. And they continue to be really hurt by this initial moment of warfare that has really lasted for centuries in the imagination of Muslims. Wow. Well, thank you for, for shedding some light on, on these, these events. It's, it's been very interesting. Uh, and thank you for being with us. It was a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. For a transcript of this episode, alignments to the Texas and National Standards for Social Studies, and links to more information on this topic, visit our website at 15minutehistory.org. That's 15minutehistory.org. And for even more, you can like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter. The University of Texas is a free speech campus. Opinions and viewpoints expressed in this or any episode of 15-Minute History do not reflect the official position of the University of Texas or of any of its constituent colleges or departments. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.